Are you feeling like no one understands your struggles? That you're isolated and alone? Like no one has your back to support, encourage, or celebrate your wins with you? Well, let me personally invite you to join me in the Living Fearless Today Facebook group. Hey, we recently launched the group and are open to other men just like you who want to know their worth, value, and purpose to grow in confidence, find their worth, and appreciate their contributions. So if you simply search Living Fearless Today on Facebook, and uh, then just click to join us. I look forward to meeting you, seeing your growth, and the success you begin to experience in your life within this band of men. This is the Living Fearless Today podcast, a show that helps men like you and me who are struggling to get unstuck and overcome fear to live confidently and courageously. I'm your host and transformation coach, Mike Forrester, helping you create the change you want now. Join me as I interview men who've conquered their challenges and soared to success as they spill their secrets on how they live fearless today. So, David, thank you so much for coming on today. Um, really appreciate it. Looking forward to talking, um, talking today about where you're at today, what your transformation has been. Um, you, you wrote a phenomenal book, uh, Dishonor, and I'd love to hear more about that process as well, because the way you laid things out in the, on it, at the level of honesty and vulnerability is not something that's typical for us as men. And so um, I'd love, as we talk later on, to also hear about how you came to that decision. But uh, if we could start with you know, like where you are today, what is, what does life look like um, for you at this point in time? Well, um, thank you for letting me uh, be on your show. I appreciate it. Um, but as where I am now today, I teach cosmetology at a hair school in Omaha, Nebraska. Um, and I've been there since 1997. It's where I met my awesome wife and, uh, we have three children at home. I have two other children, um, that don't live here in Omaha. Um, so that's kind of where I am with my family. Um, uh, but I have a really great opportunity to mentor, um, lots of students. I get a, we get about a 20 every eight weeks that come into my life and where I can lead them through this passion of theirs of learning how to do hair. And, and so also I get to mentor them, you know, in life too, just have a lot of life experience. And it's kind of cool because, uh, although I have a little bit of, of a life hiccup on my record, uh, people find me relatable because they can, you know, I understand some of the things that they're going through, um, at that age, you know, the age being 18 to 20s, uh, mid twenties, uh, and even older, sometimes uh, there's a lot of things that decisions people make during that time frame that can wreak a little bit of havoc on their lives. So it's a really cool opportunity. Um, I actually have an 18 year old daughter who's graduating high school uh, this year. She's a senior, and she's actually coming in September to uh, do hair as well. So it's kind of a we got a lot of people in our family that do that. So it's kind of cool that she's going to carry on the tradition. But I get to spend a lot of time with her at work, so that's going to be awesome. That is that's awesome. Congratulations. Yeah, do thank you. you. Do you, do you think the change, like how you, you went through your transformation, where you are today, kind of, do you see a change in your children to how you relate with them? 
Um, I would feel, I feel like I, I was really honest with them uh, when they were old enough to understand some of the things that I had, uh, some things, some of the decisions I made that put me in the places that I ended up. Uh, so they are probably a lot more aware of the things that can happen to you. And when you're a parent, you tell your kid, Hey, don't do this, or this is going to happen. They're like, yeah, dad, sure. You know, I'm going to live my life. But when they have a book about their dad that outlines everything that I went through, um, they're kind of like, Oh, that really can't happen. You know? So it's, it's probably a little more real to them. And, uh, my kids are not perfect, but, um, they're pretty awesome. So, you know, I, there is no perfect child. If that's what I'm saying, but, uh, they are, they're pretty awesome. And they've, they've made some really good decisions and other decisions that we've worked through, but yeah, we're, we're pretty good at home for the most part. Um, but I would say that, yeah, just being honest and upfront uh, about the things that a lot of parents would probably want to keep from their children can help them navigate life a little easier if they know that it's something that you've gone through yourself. So that, that openness has created like doorways that you feel wouldn't have been there before. Yes, I, I would say so. That's, that is true. Um, I do have a 10 year old who's dying to read my book, but I, there's probably a few things in there. I'm still like, I don't know if I want to explain that, you know? So, uh, but she even just asked me a little while ago. Yeah, it's because she went through something that uh, she does at school where she reads so many books. I'm like, well, when you're done with all those, then maybe we'll do mine. And she's like ready to go. <laughs> but 10 years old is a little bit young to process some of the, some of the stuff that's in the book. But yeah, she might speed read all the other stuff and surprise you. You might want to. Yeah. <laughs> oh, she's done. So she's ready. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> yeah. So what does it look like for you as far as like, um, daily routine and and how do you keep yourself in the place that you are today as far as um you know you've got a family you're you're working full time you've also you're an author um you know you've got all these things going how do you keep yourself um in a healthy place at this point um i'm going to have to 100% give all the credit to my wife um because she is probably the rock of the house and she keeps us all where, where we need to be. She's, she's just, she, she uh, basically does more than she should. Uh, so, um, you know, she, I, I think I struggle a little bit with keeping track of where everything's going and when things are supposed to happen. And uh, she, so she's makes lists for me, you know, and that's something that I've asked her to do because if it's on a list, I can get it done. Uh, you know, but I have my own routine. I get up uh, at five o'clock every morning and um, I, you know, do my morning routine, trying to get my youngest ready for the day and, uh, go to work. Uh, I, my schedule is a little bit weird. Hairdressers have a strange schedule. And at the hair school, we have a different schedule as well. So we have a late night and I work every other Saturday. My wife works every Saturday. So there's a lot of like coming and going, uh, the two, my two older daughters at home are 21 and 18. So they're self-sufficient, you know, hundred percent. Right. So, you know, it's been a little bit easier now that they're older and they have cars and they can help with, the, the, my youngest daughter fits. Yeah. My wife is a big reason why I feel like our, our family is able to function as we do. Awesome. So I would say Mary, Mary, well, <laughs> <laughs> that's great advice in and of itself right there. I'm a very blessed man for sure. Yeah. yeah understood. Um, how do you and your wife stay connected? How do you stay on the same page and you know, like keep in touch with everything that's going on. And, you know, it sounds like you've got a lot going on in one direction. She might be going another direction. How do you stay on the same page and, and connected? 
sometimes we don't always stay on the same page, but uh, overall we have the same ideals and, and hopes and dreams for our children. And that, uh, right now that's probably a, a big focus of ours. Um, every Monday we're both off. So we do, we call, I call it hashtag Mondate, but um, <laughs> we spend time together alone that way. Sometimes it's Aaron running, but it's just me and her. And so that's, that's something that, when the summer comes, it's not so much, but that's something that we do intentionally. And, uh, you know, we used to do date nights uh, in the evening once a week before COVID hit. So we haven't really quite reactivated that yet, but that's, you know, we try and be intentional that way. Um, and then, you know, family vacations is to help us reset. Uh, but, you know, at the, we still have a 10 year old, so there's, we can't just like disappear and go off together, you know, as much as we'd like to, but yeah. as far as staying on the same page, you know, we just, you know, talk things out and sometimes, sometimes we're on the same page and sometimes we're not, but you know, we work it out talking through. Yeah. And I think that's vital. Now you've got adult children and then you, you have below 18, like children, you know, children, children, how are you guys navigating that? Like, what are, what are some of the the challenges that you've come across because it's like you have to release your adult children, but you're still trying to, you know, parent your, your 10 year old. So what, what does that look like? Well, that's, it's different every day. You know, every, everybody has their own personalities and, and there's lots of different things that go into a family, but um, I think just routines, having routines and keeping everybody kind of uh, on track that way. And, Make, you know, I, my kids are are really pretty awesome, especially the older kids. They they have great grades in school. There's no disciplinary issues. We, um, you know, it's just more keeping track of our schedule is probably be our biggest hurdle. Mm, okay, so yeah, I can imagine you've got your adult children going their own direction with work and everything they have, and responsibilities right. for your ten year old, and then you guys have your own stuff. So yeah, I can appreciate yeah. that. <laughs> well, if we could. Can we go ahead and jump back to where things were as far as like, you know, in your, in your teens, kind of what, what were some of the hurdles and challenges you faced, like that you wrote about in, in dishonor? So um, growing up, my dad was in the military and he uh, it was a career air force. Um, he was drafted during Vietnam and he was in the uh, Air Force for 26 years, I believe. And then he did a bunch of uh, like another 20 of civil service. So one of the goals I had in life was to join the military and be a soldier. That was like my biggest uh, desire in life. So I did everything I could to lead up into that. I took junior RTC in high school and, you know, those are classes that kind of prepare you for the military. And then right out of high school, boom, right straight in the military. Um, I think my hurry to get out of the house and go be my own man and do my own thing at 17 years old was probably a, a little bit early and probably a little bit rushed, but I, you know, I had a goal and I wanted it. So I just did it. And my parents were living in Germany when um, I left. And so I left Germany, went to the United States and I didn't really have that connection growing up as a military kid. You don't really have a lot of family connections either. So um, I didn't really develop strong relationships or, um, you know, have friends that I grew up with that I could, you know, lean on, uh, in times of stress or whatever, but I, you know, I just ran off and did my thing. And, um, I was in a relationship that kind of fell apart. And so my, you know, I thought my life was over. Uh, that's what happens when you're a teenager and that kind of stuff happens. Uh, but I was a little depressed and I was hanging out with some, some of the soldiers I, uh, that were in my unit. And there was, uh, somehow I ended up with a pill in my hand and then it ended up in my system. 
uh, without even thinking about it, I took this drug. I'd never even drinking before, or, um, you know, I didn't, I didn't do any of that kind of stuff. So it was kind of a, a weird way to a weird gateway, but it was a hit of ecstasy. And when I took it, I was completely, um, taken over by that drug and I couldn't get enough of it. So one thing led to another and I just started consuming it more regularly. And I also started to be able to get it in quantity and get it for the people who I was hanging out with so that we could all, you know, do it together. But at, at that point I was active duty soldier selling drugs essentially, um, and ended up getting caught. Um, once I got caught, I decided, uh, that that wasn't gonna, you know, the, the cop who arrested me told me if I'd help him out, he would help me out, but I didn't really want to go with that plan. So I ended up just eventually just disappearing and running off, um, for six months. And during that six month period, I was just completely inebriated, self-medicating uh, all the pain away. And, uh, that only lasted so long before I was captured again, ended up in jail, um, where I had some contemplating to do, but, uh, I was tried and I had a five-year conviction. Um, I had my rank taken away from me. I had a dishonorable discharge assigned to me. And, um, so there's a lot of guilt and shame coming from a military heritage all the way back to the civil war, you know, my family, World War II, or my siblings were all in the military, just ha having that guilt and shame and struggling with that, um, you know, after prison, but, you know, during prison too, I, there was a lot of struggles and things going on in there and being around a bunch of people I wasn't used to being around, uh, for three years. I ended up doing it three years and getting out on parole, but yeah, it was a, it was a pretty, pretty crazy time. I went from, you know, what I would consider a good kid from a good family and quickly fell into a big black deep hole and could not get myself out. It was intense. Yeah. And, and it's one of those that we all have stuff that, that we find ourselves addicted to or trapped in that pattern. Um, whether it's, whether it's X or ecstasy, like you talked about, or, or alcohol or behavioral patterns, video games, whatever, you know, medicating, it's like, we all see that, that kind of pattern there. Do you feel like it was that time in life or, or what was it that at that time made X like the, so desirable, like that, that helped you, you know, like, uh fall into that pattern. Does that make sense? So I feel like the biggest I had at that time in my life is I, although I'd grown up in church, I didn't actually know what uh, my identity in Christ meant or was. So I was putting my identity in being a soldier, you know, being a relationship um, and things like that. So when that fell apart, I didn't really have anything to grasp onto or hold onto. So I went somehow ended up taking this drug. Uh, I probably shouldn't have been hanging out in the clubs to begin with, not knowing that that was going to happen, but it just wasn't the place to go find myself or find happiness. So uh, I believe that just not knowing my, what well, my identity, who my, that my identity should have been in Christ and stuff of these other things. That was probably the biggest mistake that I made. And that's a huge discovery. Mm -hmm. um, when so the medication made it easy for, or the drugs made it easy for me to forget everything because I would, take so much and so many different kinds every day that I just wasn't really using my brain the way it was meant to be, be used. Yeah. We can all say that for where we go. Yeah. So when you were in Leavenworth, right. For three years, how did things process and, and get you to transition or was that something that happened during that time? Well, when I look back, there was a quite a few pivotal moments where I do feel like I kind of 
showed up and it wasn't like, you know, a voice in the clouds. It was just, there were some circumstances that I felt like were orchestrated by God to kind of wake me up and let me know, Hey, you know, I, um, I'm here and we need to make a shift. Right. Uh, I mean, the first one was the night I got arrested. I had all of the drugs in my pocket and I was going to, I told everybody if I ever got caught, I was going to take them all. And the night before, for some reason, um, the ecstasy isn't something you would normally put in a little bag. It was more for LSD and drugs like that. So I put all of the pills into, into little Ziploc bags for no reason whatsoever. So when the cops came in, uh, all of a sudden I was thinking, I can't, I can't take any of these. I had to drop them and leave them on the ground. So I feel like uh, knowing what my plan was, God had a different plan for me on that day. But when I was in prison, I had relapsed. And it was about a year and a half of being sober. And I was working in a dining facility. We were, you know, cleaning. And me and another inmate were in one of the dining halls alone as we were mopping the floor. And he goes, hey, look, what I have. And I looked down in his hand. He had two hits of LSD. And I took one. I wasn't sure if he was even offering it to me, but I ended up taking it as a reflex. It was crazy. So we both were um, high on LSD and made it through the entire day. And I was up for parole right about that time for my first parole board. And I was waiting on a letter from my dad to kind of complete the package that I needed in order to get parole. So at the end of the night, after my shift, nobody could tell that we were on drugs. I'm not sure how we miraculously got out of that, but I uh, went back to my, I uh, was in a kind of a barracks and I was on my desk or my bed. I can't remember one of the two, but uh, I found the letter sitting there from mail call left there and I opened it up and right away he's uh, talking about how, what good of a kid I am or, you know, how, how I'm a good kid and that he would state his job, his reputation, his life on the fact that I would never do drugs again. This is the same day that I relapsed after a year and a half of being clean. So I felt like at that moment, I decided I am not just being stupid, but I'm hurting the people who care about me and believe in me. And I swore off drugs from that moment on. Um, and then I had one other moment where I was reading a book and it was probably another year down the road. And I moved up in custody and had a few more privileges. And I stumbled upon a radio program from a guy named Bob George. And he was just a uh, preacher and he was talking about grace and forgiveness which are words you hear in church growing up but i didn't really know what they meant obviously uh but i heard him talking about grace and forgiveness and how jesus died on the cross two thousand years before you were ever born for all the sins you would ever commit and knowing that he still did that and it I'll, i just okay that's what that means and it totally rocked my world and from that moment on i, I was just like thankful that no matter what I had done, no matter all the mistakes I had made, all of these decisions that were making that were putting me in these bad places, he for, I was forgiven, and I didn't have to keep begging for forgiveness all the time. Um, and that I, he didn't look at me the way I looked at myself, and the way that the world looked at me, and the way that I was going to be looked at after leaving prison of being a convict, uh, a dishonorably discharged soldier from the military during the time of you know nine eleven and and all of these things going on. It it just was easier for me to believe that God was my father and he looked at me the way any father would look at his son and that he loved him and that you're forgiven. It was just kind of mind blowing, but I would say those are the three main pivotal moments in my life that, that really kind of turned things around for me. So in the most, the one where you talked about forgiveness, it's like, I know men that can accept that, you know, like they, other people can forgive them. But the hang up is in forgiving themselves. Mm -hmm. Was that something at that time that, that came to you, you know, you just were able to forgive yourself or was that something that you had to work through at a different time? Or? Um, so I think it was, it, it might've been 20 years to 25 years after all of this, I, I actually wrote the book and after talking to people, 
about my story from time to time, things would come up in conversation. I was like, oh yeah, I was in prison. They're like what? You know, <laughs> I had no idea. And it, not a whole lot of people knew unless I talked about it or yeah, we used to be in the military. Yeah, but it didn't end well. And how, you know, so that, that would be the conversation, but people kept saying, you really need to write a book. And I was like, I don't, I don't even know how I got out of high school, truthfully, you know, <laughs> so I'm not sure how writing a book would work out, but God had a, another plan. And it was actually through one of Johnny Cup's groups that I was in. Uh, I can't remember what year it was, but it was about six or seven years ago where everybody was kind of coming together to do certain things. And everybody was like, you, you know what, you should blog and you should tell your story that way. And then, you know, you can gain a following of people who would be interested in your story. So I posted my very first post, which is actually the first chapter in the book. And I don't, it didn't go viral, but all these people were like, I have got to know this story. And so by continually, I blogged the entire book for three years and chapter by chapter, you know, a thousand words a week. And at the end of the three years, I ended up with a book. So I put it all together and, and released it. But the very last day, uh, on the very last blog post, I, I'm not a super emotional guy. My, you know, my family can tell you that, but I lost it. And I think that finally getting that out of my system and sharing it with people and seeing how many people were reached through the blog post and having family members who had gone through the same thing or in the same, same situation saying, you're helping me understand what they're going through or people who were reading it after the fact of coming out of prison uh, or even the books that I have shipped to inmates and their family were saying it's just made a huge difference in their life, which 100% I cannot take any credit for whatsoever. It was all God using my story um, for his glory. You know, it's one of those catchphrases, but, or my mess for his message. But I truly believe uh, that that was when I was finally able to be okay with the fact that what I had done had put me in these situations. The biggest struggle is having military family members and having dishonorably just, you know, served was probably the hardest thing from Del Echo until, until writing the book. And nobody really ever said, you're, you're a bad guy. You know, they all just said, thank you for sharing your story. Yeah. Hi, coach Mike here. Hey, thanks so much for listening to the living fearless today podcast, man. If you're struggling with your worth, feeling you're not enough and playing small, honestly, this isn't your lot in life. There is more available to you beyond this podcast to help you uncover your worth, feel respected, be confident and play bigger in all areas of your life. Grab a time at highcoachmike.com forward slash book a call to set up a complimentary session on where you're at today, who you want to be, and how you can live the life you've been desiring. Again, head on over to highcoachmike.com forward slash book a call and take that first step towards your life transformation. Now, before you started blogging and sharing your story, did you feel like it was like it was just you that had been in that situation or did, were, were you feeling like, yeah, my story is not really unique because it's like, there's been times like in my life where I felt like my situation was unique to me until I spoke to somebody else and found other men that it was like, no, this is, this is where I'm at. This is where I've been. And it's, it's just a, a misconception or a, a false belief that we believe we're the only one in that situation. Was that something that you had to work through as well? Or were you, because of being in Leavenworth, were you already aware that it wasn't just you in that situation? Yeah, I knew it wasn't just me. And I had people that went down with me, you know, it wasn't just me. Uh, um, so I think that it was very interesting to me 
that when I did share my story, how many people would come and say, Hey, I need to talk to you. I went, I went through the same thing, not maybe military prison, but prison or jail or drugs, or I was like blown away how open people would be when they finally were like, Hey, thanks for sharing that. Because now I know I'm not alone. Mm-hmm. And I, that was, that was huge. Uh, probably one of the biggest impacts I had was I, my wife's uncle is a public defender in uh, another city here in Omaha, in Nebraska. And uh, he invited me out to set up some speeches for me, but I spoke to a drug court, which is where, you know, adults, it's kind of like adult diversion. So if you get in trouble, you can go to this program and the, it'll clean your record up. But as I was speaking to these people, they were, they were, the, it wasn't just like this guy's telling the story to, to sell a book. It was like, Hey, you're, you're talking about my story. And it was really cool to see all these people who were, were connecting with what I was saying. And it was like, we shared something together. So I thought that was kind of interesting. So what's the difference in how you're talking about it with them at, at court where you're differentiating yourself? You're not just trying to sell a book, but you're, you're helping them realize, Hey, yeah, I've walked a path. What are you doing different than other people that have been in that path, but are, are focused on just selling the book? Like what, what did you do different? to be relatable. I feel like the thing that I keep being told by so many people is that coming out of prison and then going back is the norm. And I didn't do that. And so I think that's the difference is that I was able to do something with my life and become a productive member of society and give back to the community through mentoring people, uh, being an instructor. I feel like, you know, that's kind of the avenue that I chose, but um, I think just knowing that there is light at the end of the tunnel and doesn't have to be this repetitive jail sentence or uh, being reconvicted or breaking parole or things like that. So I think it was like seeing somebody win. And by win, I don't mean I have like this, you know, crazy life. I'm a normal guy, just like everybody else, but I didn't go back and I didn't, ha- and I chose a different path. And, and that if I could just a normal guy like me can do it, then they could do it too. And, and I fully agree with you on that. What is it different when you came out? Like you made a decision, come out, stay out. There's other people like you've talked about that they don't stay out. What was different like in what you did, what you thought that kept you out and kept you engaged that you didn't go back in and, and, you know, just become part of, part of that crazy cycle of, of come out, go back, you know, what was it that was different? Well, I think a lot of problems for a lot of the problem arises when an inmate gets out of jail, they go right back to the same community. They go right back to the same friends. They go right back to the same situations and they can't really get a job. There's so many different hurdles that you run into uh, being a convicted felon or somebody with a record. And so I think, again, God kind of had his plan for me. Uh, I was stationed in Louisiana and I ran away to Houston, Texas. Um, I got arrested, got sent to, Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. And then when I got out of Kansas, my, my dad, when I was in Leavenworth, my dad was stationed in Omaha, Nebraska, which is three hours away from Leavenworth, which is another God thing. They were able to come visit me. So being in a new place, new environment, no connection to my past whatsoever made it extremely easy for me in one way. The other thing I would say is that I had huge family support. My parents never gave up on me ever. My dad actually testified in my trial. He had to get military orders to come to his son's trial, you know, his commander had to sign off on a paper saying you're going to a court martial for your son. Okay. You know, uh, so he, they, they stood up for me and they took me in and they helped me get back on my feet. So I had family support. And then also I had faith. And I think a lot of people struggle with that. And not only a faith that 
we all have access to where there's a God and, and, you know, using that relationship with God to have a better life. But the God that I believe in is the one that it's one that has that forgives. And I think growing up, I didn't have that either. That's kind of why I was a little bit, uh, confused as to what a relationship with God meant. I felt like God was going to zap me for being bad. You know, when you're young, you're like, get right. You got to do the right thing, follow all the rules. And that's not a relationship. You know, that's a, that's a government, you know? So, uh, I think knowing that God forgave me and having that family support, and then obviously the new location and a clean slate for the most part, with the exception of having a, a record was, was how I was able to change my life. So how did you transition into like now you're, you're uh, teaching at cosmetology school, right? How did you get from your, your release from Leavenworth early and now you're at a position where you're, you're leading others, you're instructing them. How did you make that transition? What, what happened along the way there? When I first moved to Omaha, I had, a hard time getting a job because, you know, there's that little checkbox on an employment form that says, have you ever been convicted of a felony? And if so, when I'm like, I just got out of prison last week or yesterday or whatever. And I went through 50 job applications. Um, nobody called back. Um, I actually got a few interviews. Uh, one was at like, a restaurant. I went in there and I had worked in the dining facility in prison. So I thought, Oh, this is going to be a good fit. You know, I have experience. And the guy was super excited until he got down to the check mark box. And he goes, you know, I don't think you actually are qualified for this job as I see high school kids in the kitchen. And I was like, uh, okay, I get it. I understand. It was kind of painful when I went to uh, a retail store and I didn't fill out an application. I said, I need to speak to a manager. I just want to, you know, I'm looking for employment, but I want to talk to, some, to somebody first. Went into uh, talk to this guy. And I said, listen, I was tired of being rejected. I said, I just need to tell you right up front. This is my situation. But if you hire me today, I'll be the hardest worker that you have in this building. Um, I just need somebody to give me a chance. And he's like, okay, fine. Before I even filled out the application. And so I think sometimes you just have to go and get what you want and not take no for an answer. Um, that was that was helpful. And uh, as far as the hair thing, I was able to, uh, the reason why I chose that profession is, is a side story, but I kind of got a really bad haircut when I was in high school, uh, military base in Germany. And I was pretty embarrassed by it. So I went and bought a pair of clippers and started cutting my own hair. And I started doing the coloring thing and all that kind of stuff because during the eighties in Germany, there was a lot of that, um, that kind of style going on. So I was experimenting with it. And, uh, so when I got out of the military, you know, I did, I actually did that military side gig too. When I got out, I figured I'm just going to do that as a profession. And then when I was in school, uh, I had the owner of the school at the time was my mentor and he was kind of a well-known hairdresser in our industry. And he said, you need to take the instructor program. And I was like, eh, I don't know if I really want to do that because I'm going to be, you know, famous $500 haircut hairdresser like out in California or New York. And he said, no, I, I really want you to do this. And so uh, that was six months into a year program. And at the end of my program, I said, well, if you see something in me I, that I should, that I don't see myself, maybe I should just try it out. So I did. And it was a, a really good decision that led me into uh, this, this basically essentially kind of like a ministry uh, cause I'm able to mentor these, these kids, you know, um, but, and I met my wife, which was awesome. So, uh, during the time that I was starting out as a brand new instructor, I don't think I was a good one. Uh, but I read a lot of books. I've read a lot of leadership books, a lot of, read a lot of marriage books, and it just kind of helped me understand the mind of our, a female, which is mostly the clientele that I deal with as far as students and how we think differently. And, and so just kind of think reading and 
understanding uh, leadership principles and things like that has kind of got me further and further in my career. What are some of the, the most profound books that have had an impact on you, you know, as you've moved along? I would say like Love and Respect and Four Men Only and Four Women Only, which is kind of like uh, some research. Um, I really liked the Dave Ramsey's um, Entree Leadership book, which was really cool to read and um, I, financial, the financial books that he puts out. And then I'm a big fan of Johnny Cuff. So most of everything he read, uh, he writes, I read the newest one is called soundtracks. And it talks about um, changing your thought process from negative thoughts to positive thoughts. And there's a lot of this um, cognitive therapy that's been coming up, especially after COVID people are just like in dark places. And so um, I've read, I think three different books that have been on pretty much the same topic. Uh, Craig Rochelle wrote one called winning the war in your mind, kind of the same principle was more faith and background, but, you know, kind of changed in your thoughts from negative to positive. And so I'm working through that right now. And so it sounds like reading is like something that's pretty foundational for like how, how you're still growing yourself. Is that true? Mm-hmm. I reading podcasts. I do a lot of audiobooks because it's easier for me to have this thing on and do stuff rather than try to sit down and read a book. But yeah, definitely. Um, also I, I want to give a shout out to Andy Andrews. I don't know if you've read any of his stuff. Man, his stuff is amazing too. So uh, there's just so many good authors with a lot of great content. And sometimes it overlaps. And a lot of times it can be a fire hose of awesome. And it's really hard to like absorb it all. But there, you know, I I guess there's no excuse for leveling up in your mind. Um, If you don't, if you can't go to a seminar, if you can't take a college course or you can't, you know, go to a counselor, you don't have the time. There's always a book that can give you some information. You do have to be selective. Sometimes you can read stuff that's not, not the greatest, but <laughs> yeah, that's so true. All right. So since you, you shouted out John Acuff with uh, his new book, Soundtracks, what's your favorite book that Andy Andrews has written? And what would be the reason behind that? The Noticer, because it talks about the seven principles and you, you just have to read it, but he also wrote one that's separate from that. It's just the seven principles. Uh, I can't remember the name of it, uh, but it's, it's based off of, of that one. I would say that's his problem. That's probably the coolest book. Um, I have a physical copy of it and an audio book. Very cool. Yeah. It's a great book. Yeah. I think it's called the seven decisions. I think that's the other one. It's basically yes, yeah, seven decisions. Yep, exactly. What are some other practices besides reading that you're still like that you've used and continue to use um, for the transformation and the growth that you've gone through and are continuing to experience? Um, I would say that's probably the biggest, just reading and, and listening and and filling my head with information, um, uh, connection to God and, and staying connected to my family is probably the most important thing in my life. Very cool. If you could go back to the David when it was, you know, when you, when you joined up, what would you have told yourself back back then to try and set yourself on a different path? Um, I think you're not alone and you need to reach out. Uh, I don't know that I had the channels that available to me in the unit I was in. Uh, my brother being a career Air Force guy, he just retired, talks about how the military now self-actualizes. If you have, or if you self-actualize and say, I have a drug problem, they'll actually get, you, you can have treatment and get help. When I was in, it was like, you get into trouble like that, you're, you're pretty much gone, done, or you're going to jail. But um, but I think reaching out to somebody, maybe my family or somebody that I trusted, instead of just kind of going down that path, 
the whole thing happened so quickly and so out of character for me. I don't really understand it still to this day, why I did it or, or how it even came about. So it's really hard to pinpoint how I would have, how to have um, stopped before it went too far. But um, also I think just your identity is in Christ and, and not in people and not in this career choice that didn't quite work out for me. So, so David, thank you for, for sharing and, and jumping in here, sharing your story, sharing the changes where you're at. If folks want to reach out to you, what's the best way for them to get in touch with you? I'm pretty much on every social media platform. Um, I do have a website. It's dilemmamike.com and it's spelled D-I-L-E-M-M-A-M-I-K-E and then dot com. Um, on Facebook, it's David Mike. And on Instagram, it's Dilemma Mike. I use Dilemma Mike as my handle. Um, when life hands you uh, dilemmas, you make dilemmonade. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. It's a joke that somebody told me recently. But, you know, I mean, the the dilemma came out as a, our initials kind of spelled that. And then Mike's my last name. But it made sense because when you make choices in life and you have to make choice, decisions, you know, so I use that. Um, when I first started out with my blog and my social media, I didn't realize you're supposed to brand yourself with your own name. But Dilemma Mike became my brand and it went so far with it. It, it just, it was okay. So <laughs> that's awesome. And is there anything like, as far as like, that you want people to like draw their attention to when they visit your website or your social media? Is there anything that you, the biggest thing I would say is that, uh, although I am selling this book, the it's a dishonor one soldier's journey from desertion to redemption, it can be found on Amazon. Uh, but I do have a fund set up that I, it's not a official charity, you know, not a, whatever the code is, I don't know what the tax code is. Uh, but I do have, you know, people have donated money for me to ship books to inmates. And if, somebody were to reach out to me and say, I have a brother in prison, I have a family member in prison or somebody struggling with the guilt and shame of their past um, that I would love to send them a copy of my book until the money runs out. So I just shipped 24 copies to a cosmetology school in a women's prison in Oklahoma. This is the second time I've sent books to them. And I'm totally up for that kind of stuff because uh, for me, that particular, those, those girls, those women that are in that prison are going to be facing the same thing that I faced when I got out and in the same industry. So I think that's kind of a cool matchup, but I am, I will send copies to anybody who wants me to send a copy, you know, behind the walls or in prison. Usually it has to be shipped through Amazon directly because a lot of jails and prisons don't want somebody handing them something. So yeah, I just need an address and a prison number and I'll ship a copy. And would you mind sharing like a, a testimony or story that you've, you've gotten from, from doing that where you're sending books to, to in? Man, there's there's so many. Um, there, I actually have sent about three copies to Fort Leavenworth, which was one day I was like, I really like to get a copy in there. But I had a woman who reached out to me, and her son is going to be in there for a very long time for some some bad stuff. And she said uh, that he uh, was super thankful to get a copy of the book. It's helped him kind of process what's happening to him. And he, he likes the book so much, he keeps leaving it out for other people to read. And I guess a guy who's kind of involved in Wicca picked it up and read it and has been going to the Bible study. So I thought that was kind of cool. And then just yes, or that last week, uh, in the month of April of this year, I celebrate 30 years of sobriety. And so I kind of made a Facebook post about it. And I had a guy reach out to me and tell me that he read my book when he was in jail and it really resonated with him. And I was like, well, where are you at? And he said, Florida, at this particular jail, he just got out of a week ago. 
And I don't even know how this book ended up in that jail because I've never sent a copy there. So somebody must have donated it. He said he saw it sitting on top of a pile of books. He grabbed it, read it, and it blew him away. So I said I sent him a copy this week. Um, so I know it's just really cool to hear that even though I may or may not market or you know, I may take months off and not say anything about the book, it just ends up where it's supposed to. And I'm just thankful that God still uses my story. Uh, I think it's been five and a half or six years since I wrote it, you know, for a self-published book, usually life expectancy is about a year and mine still just ends up where it's supposed to end up. There you go. I love it. Yeah. Uh, David, thank you so much for sharing everything you have and especially with the book and how it's, you know, people can come alongside you, have books sent and, and have an impact. And I mean, like you shared, you never know where, one impact will go and where that stone will cause another ripple. So right. David, thank you so much. And uh, again, I appreciate you being here today, my friend. Thanks so much, my friend for joining me on another episode. If you found the information within the show helpful, please leave a review on the platform you're listening to it helps raise the show's visibility. So other men can join us in breaking free. See you on the next episode and remember to continue putting yourself out there. Have a great one.